We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Perpetual Chess Podcast. I am here with author... Lawyer, chess player, Alyssa Melikina. Alyssa, thanks for coming on. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. So, Alyssa, we were talking for a minute offline, and I had asked you if um, if you preferred to be called uh, FIDE Master or Woman International Master, which I know is a um, everyone has different opinions about this. And and you said that I should ask you this on the podcast. So let's uh, let's discuss this. What's your preference? I did because my answer would probably be longer than than was necessary and probably cover some topics that are good for the podcast. So I have a very strong preference for FM and I can go into more detail why, but uh, you know, basically I, I did achieve my FIDE rating of over 2300. I got the FM title that way and I got my WIM title through achieving norms and a FIDE rating of 2200. Uh, but my view is that the FM title compared to the WIM title is is stronger. So I prefer going by that. But even if I had the WGM title, which is a bit more difficult to obtain, I would still go by FM. And I don't particularly believe in the necessity or the prudence behind having separate titles for female players. And this is a very different topic from whether there should be female-only tournaments, which um, I think do have their own merits and have their place. But if we're talking about titles specifically, uh, I, I think they're unnecessary and they're also you know, very difficult to explain. And even the way that we're prefacing this podcast by going into these titles, you know, it, it, it really begs the question of why they're around. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I always as a host feel like I'm slightly awkward situation because on the one hand, people are wondering about it. But on the other hand, I want to talk about people's like lives and careers more so than I do about semantics, which is really what it boils down to, except that it's it's such a topic of conversation. So uh, I'm glad that we got that out of the way. And I, I mean, I think that this would be this generally should be left up to women chess players this this settling this topic but i'm not sure how that would happen do you have an idea like administratively how uh it could be changed i guess it would come from within fide well i mean i i don't know if we necessarily have to phase all of the titles out completely because there are arguments that you know having the the titles they are good milestones for the female chess players to have they are good goals to strive for and they do serve an incentive function but i i think it's more up to the players themselves so you know for example i i have a preference for being addressed as fm and so i i let tournament organizers know and they know to pair me as fm and so it it's more of my choice um, so I, I don't know if we want to deprive players of the choice of whether to have the title, but I think you know if female players 
just decided to band together or to start this trend of I'm just going to go purely by the generic title, I, I think eventually the the other titles will lose meaning on their own without ha- having to go through these you know, procedures and imposing our will on everyone. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good to me. And for listeners, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with you, but just to give um, a little bit more perspective on on who you are. So you're a talented young chess player, but also now working full-time as a lawyer, and you've just written a book uh, called Reality Check. And can can you help me with the subtitle? Obviously, I, I've, I'm, as I told you offline, um, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read the book. It's I, I try to serve my audience by being prepared for uh, the uh, for each guest, but I also sometimes reach conflicts where I want so I want to have someone on the podcast, but I haven't had time to read their books. Like. Um, and I don't want that to prevent the person from being able to communicate with the chess playing audience. So that was sort of the conundrum I found myself in here and I have with some other authors. But anyway, that's an aside. But could you uh, tell the audience the uh, full title of Reality Check? Sure. And first of all, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about the book, even though you didn't get a chance to get to it yet. It, it was released very recently. And I know a lot of people are on vacation, have a lot of things going on. So it, it's a pretty lengthy book to get to. The subtitle is What the Ancient Game of Chess Can Teach You About Success in Modern Competitive Settings. And it it, it does cover topics of business and strategic thinking and how chess can help you there. But I would describe it more as a book on competitive philosophy. And the overarching framework of this book is how to find fulfillment in a competitive endeavor. And we're using chess as a model for that. And keeping that framework in mind, how do you optimize your performance and decision making in whatever you choose? And so the competitive endeavors that I tend to highlight are the ones that resonate with me more like navigating the education system, um, navigating male dominated fields. And so in that sense, it's targeted towards, you know, millennials who are navigating these institutional and career settings for the first time. But it, it is also applicable for anyone who is balancing multiple careers or trying to optimize their decision making in uh, particularly competitive settings. Yeah, well, you certainly are qualified to speak upon this because, I mean, it's an incredible feat. You're in what, your second year as an associate uh, at a law firm? Is that right? Uh, I've actually been practicing for three years in October. And so in a few weeks, when we have our new first year associates join, I will be considered a fourth year associate, which is a bit terrifying to think right. about. Hopefully time is flying. Okay, because Alyssa, uh, a small bit of my background that I haven't really gotten into on the podcast before is I was a, a legal associate. That, I mean, as many um, people who are considering a career in law do, uh, when they get out of college, I was a legal associate at another big New York law firm. So I sort of got a firsthand view of how hard they work, you guys. So I'm just amazed that you were able to put the time in and write um, this expansive book uh, while, I assume, working very hard uh, um, as a lawyer as well. No, Yes, and I had no idea that you were involved in, in the legal industry, so that's interesting. We have another chess law connection because all the chess players seem to go into finance. There aren't too many chess lawyers out there. But yeah, this book took me around two years to to write and put everything together. And, you know, I, I had been writing for a lot of chess publications and had been writing articles along these themes of, you know, how chess can help you um, in the business and the education, the setting, the lessons learned from chess as applied to other contexts. And there was this unifying theme. And I, I decided to weave all my thoughts together and it turned into this book. Okay. And how many hours a week are you working at, at the law firm, roughly? What do you think? Uh, it varies based on my caseload. So I am in litigation um, as, as opposed to corporate. Uh, and uh, as a litigator, doing document review, preparing for depositions, uh, prepping witnesses. And if we have a discovery deadline coming up, then it could be, you know, up to like, maybe like 70, wow. 70 hours a week or so. 
Um, but uh, otherwise, it, it's more stable. And I do like litigation because there is at least a predictable timetable of, you know, the judge sets the schedule for the case. And so you, you can predict what's going to happen. So you know when you'll have zero free time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, as often happens in litigation, you, you may think that you're completely finished with one case and then it suddenly flares up and then all heck breaks loose and you have to scramble and fix that problem. Yeah. When I was a, a paralegal, we worked, I was in corporate litigation. So or even as like, I was just a, a paper shuffler basically, but um, we still were beholden to the same sort of schedule. Um, Right. And I think you, you guys had it the worst if you were the ones putting the binders together and, you know, making sure all the documents were in, in the right order. Oh, man, I'm having flashbacks. We need, we need to change the subject. <laughs> um, sure. It seemed, it seemed like the lawyers, I mean, it was a case-by-case basis. Some of them really enjoyed the cases they were on and some less so, but, but it was definitely grunt work at the paralegal level. Right. Well, a part of my practice is doing intellectual property litigation. So that involves copyrights and trademarks. And that's an area of law that has always fascinated me. And in fact, I got interested in that through chess because, you know, you, like five, five years ago or so when the chess broadcasts were as fully developed and, you know, social media was just popping up. Uh, you know, I, I would find my games would be out there online, like the photos of me at tournaments. And so I just started wondering, you know, what, what are the intellectual property protections around chess games and around you know, the persona of players? And so I started looking more into that. Nice. And what's, you know, there's this famous chess case involving the transmission of moves. Uh, I'm sure you have some familiar familiarity with that. So what's your opinion about, like, should, like, FIDE have exclusive copyright to showing um, moves live if they're the ones paying for the tournament or finding the sponsorship? Sure. Well, I can't provide uh, legal advice in this context, but I I can opine from more of a business perspective that, you know, whether FIDE has exclusive licensing or not, and I I don't think the the right term would be copyright. I think it's more of licensing in in this respect, because I did write a paper a few years back about whether you can copyright chess games and the conclusion I came to in that paper was that you can't copyright a game on its own because the parameters and confines of a chess game are very similar to what you would come across in let's say a a mathematical or logical system and you of course can't copyright mathematical equations because they're rooted in nature and that would exert a monopoly over the things arising in nature. So you can't copyright chess games per se, but you can copyright a compilation of chess games if they're in a book, because that involves a minimal amount of creativity as would be required. Uh, So do chess broadcasters have some kind of IP right over the broadcast of chess games, which are not on their own copyrightable? Do they have ownership over a specific move that's broadcast? No, I, I think those those legal issues can get very tricky, but in terms of the business aspect of it, I think we, we do need to come to an agreement about how to monetize the broadcast and how to support the players so that the community can get behind it and so that when the chess community does want to go to sponsors outside of the chess world, they have some financial interest or they have you know, some reason to get behind this. And maybe it's not from the broadcast itself. Um, maybe they want to buy advertising or do product placements or something, but we definitely need to, I think, come up with some kind of strategy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so getting back to putting this book together, um, so did you have to wake up early to work on it or did you just like when your cases were, uh, a little less busy, is that when you spent time on it or what was your approach, uh, for, um, finding the time to do this while working like more than full time? Well, the way I tend to write is rooted in how I was trained in philosophy in undergrad. And in philosophy, you would just do stream of consciousness writing. At least you you would find some kind of argument and then you would try to break it down and you would just 
write endlessly about it. And I found that that was in contrast to legal writing, where in law, it seems like every time you write something, it has to be absolutely citable, supported by case law, formatted the right way. So the way I would approach this book was more in terms of how I'd write a philosophy paper where I would just get get my thoughts together and I would just start writing, writing, writing. And it wasn't so much of like when when I would have pockets of time, it was more of when I would could get into this zone. And then other times when I was busier and I just couldn't force myself to write because writing something is, it, it takes a lot out of you and it's, it is a very demanding task. And so when, when I was feeling lazier, then I would take what I wrote and just start editing it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and especially it's demanding, like, again, to, in light of like either coming home from work or waking up early, or I know I'm sure you sometimes have to go in on the weekend. So when you have free time on the weekend, it's, it's pretty precious. So it's um, quite impressive that you undertook this. Um, so let's get into the meat of the book a little bit. I mean, there's other stuff I'm going to want to touch on too, but this is, uh, probably, uh, dearest to your heart right now. So, uh, you, uh, you mentioned, um, the essentials of a chess strategy and the competitive mindset, and then you get into, um, 10, 10 lessons that apply from business to, uh, that, I mean, sorry, from the chessboard that can be extrapolated to business. So, uh, Rather than just read the 10, do you just want to take it from here and tell us a little bit about uh, what what lessons you think from chess are most applicable to business? Sure. And I do want to clarify that that section on chess and business was a bit tongue-in-cheek because I do preface that by saying there are chess books out there, entire chess books that go into, you know, let's talk about like two two bishops and how the two bishops together control greater scope over the board. And then in, in the business, you'd want to expand, you know, your distribution so you also have greater scope over your market. And so here are like 10, 10 chess business lessons in, in the same vein. Um, but the rest of the book is more about how do you actually think in order to come to these conclusions in in the end and how do you train yourself to do that. But, you know, while, while I, I do list those out a bit tongue-in-cheek, there are some lessons that I think are particularly important for business and also for, for other settings. Um, I'd say attention to detail is very underestimated, but it, it comes up a lot and especially as a lawyer when you know as a junior lawyer a lot of what i'm doing is like editing briefs and doing research and so being cognizant of those very small details or when i'm looking through documents and doing fact discovery just noticing something that's slightly off because i'm trained to um just scan everything and, and pick out those little aberrations is is very important and everyone is so focused on instant gratification these days and so focused on the big picture and we we just don't have time to sit and condense everything and think through everything that this is a skill that is largely getting lost okay um so what uh can you think of fields outside of law because i definitely think that's true of law what about other corporate settings i mean i guess law is your primary uh area of expertise besides chess but do you think that that's important for like i don't know um business or i mean i'm trying to think of of uh, other examples sure well i don't think it's an accident that a lot of chess players tend to go into finance because you know in in finance you're also dealing with a system where you theoretically have perfect information available to all market participants. And just like in the chess game, there is perfect information out there for you and for your opponents. So then it becomes a question of how do you actually obtain an advantage within this system of perfect information? And there are specific strategies to finance that you can follow. And, you know, the traders that are really good and successful, they, they're thinking the right way and they know how to master their emotions and look for the right patterns in order to make the optimal trading decisions and in in chess as well because if you and your opponent are at the same level you know how how do you actually win so it it all comes down to training that competitive mentality okay so any uh any chess advice for like how um how to gain a competitive advantage like if you're playing someone roughly equal strength, what what is it that I mean? Obviously, every game tells its own story, but do you do you have any like uh, general advice for 
ways to separate yourself or things that that you think you were good at um, emphasizing that others weren't as good? Sure. So if you're playing someone on a completely level playing field, let's say like equal rating strength, you're both equally booked up the same way. You have the same sort of base knowledge. At at that point, it really becomes about the player and how good you are about overcoming cognitive biases. And I talk a lot about that in my book and how to train train yourself to identify these biases, not not just in chess, but in other contexts, I go into you know biases that we encounter in the cultural setting and social settings, and how to just be on the lookout for that, so that if your judgment is being clouded, you can at least identify this bias and nip it in the bud before it makes you make a suboptimal decision. And these um, subliminal uh, subconscious biases are often very difficult to overcome because we we don't even realize that they're there and that's part of the problem is we think we're acting rationally and you know if we really want to make a decision there are so many different ways that we can rationalize through it so it's how do you actually come to the point where you are thinking completely objectively okay and can you think of any examples of uh like in particular of these biases either from your own experience or just from like talking to friends or working with students i I see these types of biases present um in the games of weaker chess players and it's interesting because whenever i deliver lectures for example and i ask the attendees to identify the the proper move in the position you you can easily see the difference in the level of thinking between stronger and weaker players and weaker players will usually articulate their thoughts by saying oh i think this is the right move because that looks good or you, you know you don't want to play that move because that looks scary and that that feels right so they're kind of articulating based on on their feelings or their intuitions but you you'll see the stronger players by contrast they'll just give you a variation they'll say you know this move this move is right because if black goes here and so and so then this is what happens and then i think the even stronger players will take it a step further where they give you the flawless calculation and on top of that they'll add an evaluation at the end and so a, a, a lot of these biases at the very start, you know, if, if you're too scared to castle it because you think that your opponent may start attacking you on that flank, but you don't really calculate it, it out or you t- you're too scared to accept a sacrifice because you think that your opponent has an attack, then that can really stunt your game and you know, once you realize that, and I think you train yourself to overcome that and to calculate that through, that's one example where that'll help optimize your chess. And then taking that from the chess context to other contexts, you know, I talk a lot about how certain of your cultural, you know, uh, upbringing or assumptions can influence your decision making. And I talk a lot about the Eastern European culture. That's how I was raised. And Eastern European culture is very distinct and it has a bit of both Western and Eastern mentality. And the Eastern European culture particularly is, it's very direct. I would describe it as kind of work hard, play hard type of mentality and has very strong work ethic. Um, and it, it, it is also plagued by a bit of pessimism and that just comes from you know, the, the Russian people and the, the Soviet Union and the, how they were oppressed by communism, distrustful of authority of government and um, just very different cultural background from something purely American or purely westernized. And it took me a while to realize how that pessimism uh, affected my outlook on life or affected my outlook in chess and how it made me more risk averse in certain settings. And, you know, I I realized that not everyone who's reading the book is going to be Eastern European, but I think even considering something like how your cultural setting or how your social settings impact your decision-making is very important. That's interesting. I mean, it's funny though, because like, Obviously, there might be some biases that maybe people from Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union 
have, but generally it's not holding them back in chess too much, or at least it hasn't. Sure. Well, it's definitely not um, holding them back from chess. You have a lot of strong Eastern European players, and that, that's also part of the culture is that we tend to be very resourceful, and that definitely helps you when you're a chess player. Yeah. Um, okay. And again, and- this, this is based on, you know, like very detailed sociological studies and I, I do cite them and I do give an overview of them. But of course, these are all overgeneralizations, you know, not not all Eastern Europeans are like this, but it's uh, I, I can definitely see the difference in culture between me being raised in an Eastern European household and some of my American friends and the way we would approach a situation or a problem is is very differently. And I tend to always look at things more as the glass is half empty versus half full. And while you don't see that immediately, you know, present itself on the chessboard, I think over time, it, it, over time, it could definitely impact the types of decisions that you're making and your overall perspective. Right. Yeah. I mean, so much of uh, so many of your decisions within a game are governed by like your whether you think your position is good or not. So if yeah, if you have a built in bias that your position is maybe I mean, if you're like naturally underestimating your position um that's definitely being aware of that would be very helpful um i think and i at least when i was playing more actively i was more the opposite and i'm guessing more like you know the famous study of like 90 percent of people think they're above average drivers so it, it may be that uh eastern europeans are the exception but i'm guessing that generally chess players probably especially like less advanced ones are more likely to overestimate their chances than to underestimate them. Right. And I didn't raise the Eastern European point to say, this is how you're thinking on the chessboard. That's more for the the times when I'm talking about navigating competitive settings outside of, outside of the chess context. So that's more applicable towards, you know, the education system or, or the career aspect of it, because if you tend to be more resourceful and more, distrusting of the natural hierarchy of things i think you're more likely to start thinking outside the box and to start thinking more in terms of you know how how do you navigate this system and what are some creative options and then that can lead to finding different ways to overcome entrenched biases and assumptions right okay and since you mentioned your Eastern European background, why don't we get into your background a little bit, Alyssa? So I know that you're from Ukraine and your parents came when you were quite young, but I don't actually know where on the Eastern seaboard you grew up. So where did you grow up? Sure. So that's also a bit of a complicated question now because I was born in Crimea, which was then part of the Soviet Union, but then considered part of Ukraine. And now it's a part of Russia. So whenever someone asks me what what my background is or which country I'm from, I always you know, have to think a, a little bit about how to answer that nowadays. But in any case, I was um, two months old when we immigrated to the U.S. Uh, as refugees. So I, it, it's not like I really grew up there, but uh, fortunately, my parents did still speak Russian at home, so I kept the language. And we first lived in Brooklyn for, I think, the first few years when we immigrated here in a Russian community. And then we moved to Philadelphia, in northeast Philadelphia, where there is also a Russian community. So I I grew up with that. And I grew up in a community where you would drive down the main street in the town and all, all the signs would be in Russian. And there would be like this Russian grocery store. I was trained in classical ballet and I took lessons from a Russian, uh, well, a dance teacher. She was from Kazakhstan, but the lessons were led in Russian. And all the girls who attended also came from these Eastern European families, usually um, for first or second generation immigrants. So that was definitely a big part of my life growing up. Okay. I feel slightly better about uh, my confusion or my lack of awareness about if you were from Brooklyn or Philly, because I sort of knew it was one or the other. And I know you went to undergrad and law school in Philly, but I wasn't sure uh, which you spent your childhood in. So um, you, you may know I'm also from Philly, and I know we've got some friends in common. So where did you go to school, just out of curiosity? Uh, by school, you mean high well, school? Yeah. I mean, yeah, let's start with high school. Okay, so I I went through the Philadelphia public school system. 
and that influenced some some of my views as well in the book on the education system in in the U.S. And I'm a big believer in public education and and the value that it can have. And it's interesting because in Manhattan, where I live now, you know, you you see everyone is striving so hard to get their four year olds to these really high-end private schools and the tuition at those schools is ridiculous it's like the tuition for one year of college and it's so competitive and you you have these like three-year-olds going on interviews to get into these prep schools so for me coming from you know I just went to public school in Philadelphia and I I think I turned out fine and I have a lot of friends who are also you know doing great things in their lives and we all, all turned out fine so it, it's a bit interesting for me to see this culture clash yeah, that's uh, that's been my experience and my perspective as well, and that's part of why my wife, when we had kids, left New York. Um, it's uh, there's kind of no escape from the competitive environment unless you leave uh, the city because you feel like you don't want to do wrong by your child, but it's kind of hard to opt out of the system that's in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not going to be of great interest to a lot of our listeners, but which which high school did you go to in Philly? So I went to Northeast High School. Okay. For, yeah, and that was for one year, and then I basically dropped out of high school. So I, I consider myself a high school dropout in that in that sense. And so after a year, um, I just thought that it it wasn't for me the the structure of it, and you know I felt like I could teach myself all of the subjects better and not spend as much time on thing things like group projects and. Um, it, it, it was just t- taking up a lot of time and I thought it was inefficient and just not right for me. So then I basically kind of taught, taught myself and then I passed the GED. So I, I basically got my GED instead of a high school diploma. And then in my final year, of what would have been my senior year of high school, I took um, classes at the local community college to satisfy my requirements that way. And then I had those transfer in when, when it was time for me to go to college and that helped me graduate early. Okay. And did this, was uh, your chess playing involved in this decision too? Did it give you more time to pursue chess? Absolutely. That was a big part of it. That, that was part of, you know, I, I felt like um, by that age, you know, and I, I would, I know like a, there are a lot of students that are homeschooled now. I think this is more common outside of the U.S., um, I, I probably, I don't, I don't know if I, this would have been a good decision earlier on, but after, um, my first year of high school, um, would have turned 15 by the end of it. I think like by that age, I, I had, I had enough to make my decisions and had enough of a foundation and I knew that I wanted to take chess seriously. So in those two years, which would have been my 10th and 11th, um, grade years of school, I, traveled and played chess a lot. And in fact, I achieved a lot of my most significant victories during those two years. I got my I am norm uh, at around Robin in Chicago during that time. And that's something I've not been able to replicate since. Yeah, I saw when you wrote about that and I could definitely identify with it because my rating also peaked when I was about 18, sad to say. Um, so could you uh, t- tell our listeners a little bit about like, uh, why you think it is like what it is that that has um, st- um, slowed your development since getting out of high school and you know pursuing chess hardcore? You mean slowed my chess development? Yeah, right. Yeah, that that was a big part of what inspired you know writing this book and also um, an article I did for Chess Life Online about. Um, about my experience in law school is titled legal moves. And so when I went through college and law school and, you know, people are starting to tell me, Oh, well, you don't really have that much time for chess. You know, you're, you're in law right now. You know, it must be hard to balance everything. So you, you kind of start believing that narrative. It's like, well, yeah, I guess I really don't have time or I should be focusing on one more than the other. So what I found happening uh, in law school is that I just lost the desire to prioritize chess because when you're enclosed in, in that bubble and everyone is talking about their law school outlines or what law firms they're interviewing with or you know pre- preparing for the exams that are coming up and then it, just focusing on chess games and even if I played in a tournament and I did well it wouldn't really add anything to what I was experiencing in that world and so that's why I begin the book by talking about being cognizant of these different worlds and how to 
accept that you're in one or the other and finding fulfillment in one of them. And so I would say the biggest thing that slowed my development was that I, I just kind of lost the the desire to keep going in, in this one world. And it wasn't that, oh, I didn't have enough time to do it because I think you know that that's an easy excuse for all of us to make. But there's always time to make it if you really want it, but you have to decide to want it. And that is the most difficult part. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like um, I get the impression that you've always had sort of, you've always been pretty driven, it seems, both um, academically and like in a chess sense. So um, I'm getting the impression that like from the time you went to college or certainly uh, law school, you you probably had an inkling that you were going to be looking for work outside of chess. Is that true? Uh, I never really thought about it in terms of what what I would be doing for a career because I had de- pretty defined interests in chess and philosophy. And then I graduated from my philosophy program being a pragmatist and that led me to law. Um, but I, I, I never imagined that I would completely drop off one of my activities and just do the other one full time. So that that's something that I also you know have to keep in in the back of my mind. Is it like how do I identify myself and what what is it that really gives me the the happiness and, and the drive to continue? And that in fact is the reality check. You know, this or in other words, there are these like little existential crises, but it's these little reality checks that kind of pop in into your head every now and then. Uh, that you have to overcome and you have to manage, and that that's what the book centers on. Okay. And now that you live in New York and work and you've been writing this book, so do you ever get to play any local tournaments, or are you interested in it? Oh, yes. I definitely – I still keep up with chess. Uh, the Marshall Chess Club is right here, so that helps a lot. I can always drop into those tournaments. I played in the Manhattan Open uh, you know, recently, so – you know, and my parents still live in Philadelphia, so I always have access to uh, the big continental chess events that happen in Philadelphia. I played in the U.S. Uh, women's Championships the first two years when I was practicing law, and I played in millionaire chess. So I, I still keep up with the big events, but I'm definitely not as active as I used to be in the general circuit, and it's just because like I, I do have a limited number of days in which I can take off. And even if I could take off and play in the tournament, uh, it's it's generally a bad idea to do that if I'm not completely prepared. Yeah, amen. And and what's going on with your game right now? Like if you were to highlight like uh, one uh, thing that's going well or going poorly in your most recent games, what, what would that be? Well, I'd say now that I'm not playing as much, I am studying more. So I feel that even though it's definitely not reflected in my results or my rating, I have a better understanding of the game and also better appreciation for it. Uh, so I'm happy with that. But on the other hand, that if, if I do start playing in the tournament again, what inevitably happens is I fail to convert advantages. And this has been a problem with my chess for a while and something that I'm trying to overcome. And it, I think it's getting there slowly but surely, but still it's very heartbreaking. You know, if, if I feel like I, I played really well and then, you know, I'm a pawn up or whatever it is and there's inevitably a time scramble involved and then the advantage dissipates. So I, and I think that that's partly due to the fact that, you know, if, if you don't play for a while and you come back to it, you, you tend to second guess a lot of the moves and decisions you're making during a game, which depletes your time. So that leads to the time trouble. And then when you do have to decide to go into complications, you're not as confident. So I, I what happens in my games a lot is instead of continuing the initiative and what I started, I tend to retreat and I tend to be more risk averse. And then sometimes I, I simplify the position into an end game just because there's less risk that I'll lose. But of course I you know, give my advantage up. Yeah, I can, I can relate to a lot of that. I've had very, very similar issues with uh, like just the, the slow uh, time crush of double checking variations way more than you would like if you were in peak form. Uh, it really, it really adds up to impact one's results a lot. Um, uh, so, if you were to like, um, I I know you've been over twenty three hundred in the past, and you've fallen back a little, but from there. So, if you were to have the time to try to address this, like, what what would you do? 
Well, yeah. Well, first I would have to decide I want to address that. And that that I think is the the hardest thing to do because once you decide and once you're committed, then, you know, there are resources that you can look at and there are paths that you can follow. Uh, But something that I'm working on right now um, is diversifying my knowledge of the game. So I, I play... I would say a very narrow opening repertoire, and I know some structures very well, but I don't know other structures as much. So I've been an E4 player my whole life, and against D4, I generally play the King's Indian. So I don't necessarily know these, you know, like these laugh structures and all as well. So I'm trying to build my knowledge there, and I think it's a good time to do it when you're not playing because if you like if, if I just suddenly played the Karo can in in one game it could go horribly wrong but if I just learned that on my own it's uh, it's a good risk-free way to learn it while boosting my overall game and so I, I know you like to ask about chess books a, a chess yes. book that I'm reading myself that is very helpful is uh, Mauricio Rios's book on Grandmaster um, a Grandmaster Guide to Chess Structures so that that is a fantastic book. It's Excellent, new suggestion there. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, I think that one that one is it. It's not exactly for beginners, but it's. Um, I, I think like players of all skill levels can appreciate that. Okay, and generally, when you were coming up, I I saw that you wrote, wrote a little bit about how you didn't have like an individual coach. You were. Um, often self-taught so what was your your learning approach like were you a book reader or more like learning from your experiences how how did you um how did you ascend in chess what was your approach all right so my dad was you know my only chess coach growing up and i i never had like a professional uh, grandmaster coach and so we would learn the game together from scratch and we would start start with the basics and the fundamentals and I remember the first few books that I had read was Purdy's Purdy's books were good uh Andy Saltis's books on the end games were really good so we just had kind of books to cover every aspect of the game oh Lev Albert's books are are also excellent for like beginner to intermediate players to improve so you kind of work on each aspect of the game and find like a go-to book for that and then uh, every time I would play in the tournament would always analyze you know all all the games especially the losses and in yeah. fact i think something that we didn't do as often was analyze the wins as much and it's because e- even if you win a chess game there are still a lot of things that y- you could have done better or maybe your opponent just really played worse and if you win it happens to reinforce bad habits so i think it, it's very important to look at all games yeah yeah, that's that's good advice for sure. Uh, so, how good a chess player was your dad? Uh, well, he started playing now. Now that you know, he doesn't have to accompany me to chess tournaments. So he's, I, I think he's just like under the two thousand level. Okay. Um, yeah. So he he played uh, in, in Crimea, I gather. He used to play back, yeah, back in the day, not competitively, but he knew the rules. But he he would learn the rules, you know, with me. So we really learned this game together. And yeah, he he never wanted. I would always challenge him, you know, whenever he was trying to give me advice, and I would ask him, well, why don't you play in a tournament? You know, let's see how you do. And he would say, you know. No, no, like you know, coaches they they don't need to play, and <laughs> just just to kind of kind of i guess give some cover over him yeah it's funny how you make it sound like he's barely played yet he was still like 1900 (laughs) that that's one of those only only in the soviet union things i feel like exactly so i know you've played in a couple u.s championships Alyssa. in addition to being a strong uh scholastic player growing up do you have any like what's your most memorable chess victory what's your what do you what brings up the most emotion when you reminisce in all your tournaments Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I scored a lot of my best uh, victories right when I, um, I guess, finished high school before I was going to college, and that was in 2009, and I played in the the U.S. championships that year. So I've been playing in the U.S. championships for a while now. I think I've played a total of eight. But I played in the very first one when it was hosted in St. Louis for the first time at the, the Chess Club and Scholastic Center St. Louis. And that was such a memorable experience because it was 
you like it was not like anything I've ever experienced and the tra- the players were treated so well we were pampered you know that that was I think one of the first times where we had like a live broadcast and post game commentary going on for the US Women's Championships at, at least at the time and it was like a completely different world and that tournament definitely motivated me to still keep up with chess because if it weren't, you know, for that and seeing the appreciation for chess around that, I don't think I would have been as motivated to stay in the game as I had started going through college and through law school. And by the way, I finished um, third place that year. So that would have been my best finish in a national event. Nice. Um, yeah, I want to come back to that because um, I want to come back to the U.S. Championship. But what about going back to like your scholastic days? Do you have any like um, outstanding result that comes to mind, or like particular like upset that you may have had where you felt like okay, I'm like, was there a moment where you realized you were talented at chess? Uh, I think that came at the World Youth Championships. Uh, so I I also played in every consecutive World Youth since. I think 2000 uh, and Pan American champ. I played in three or four Pan American championships as well. And so back in the 2000s, I'm not quite sure how the structure is now, but they would have designated players who would be invited to represent their age category. And the lowest age category uh, back then was under 10. Uh, So the first time I played and it was held in Spain that year, I kind of, um, I, I was not one of the invited players and, you know, my dad thought it was, uh, I won, I think a, a few national, uh, sections. So I, my dad thought it would be a good experience for me to get exposure. Uh, and, and so I had come in as kind of like this, uh, this underdog and, and this unknown. And then, uh, next year I, I had like an average result and the next year kind of came came along with the team in the same way but then i i was in the medals by by the last round like i needed a draw to clinch a, a bronze medal which which would have been re- really good for me but like i i also outperformed the invited player and so i think it was that turning point that you know wait a second here's this like un- unknown quantity and she's performing at this international level and you know really bringing home a good result for the team I think was what really kind of set that trajectory for a greater chess career. Nice. And so I'm, I know that you are pretty young, but you, I know you've been to China for chess. Where else has chess taken you travel wise? Uh, Chess has taken me everywhere. And that has been very instrumental in my upbringing and my appreciation for different cultures. And I'm very grateful for chess for giving me that opportunity to travel. And the interesting thing about chess tournaments is they're not always held in like the biggest cities, especially the world. So it's not like I'm always going to like Paris or London for chess, but I'm going to places like Belfort, France, or, you know, like, Batumi, Georgia, or Ankara, Turkey, and you know the pl- places that you wouldn't immediately think of. Uh, so China was is definitely a tremendous experience, and the Chinese Chess Federation does a wonderful job hosting all of the players, and they do a like top notch job, kind of comparable to what the St. Louis Chess Club is doing. So whenever you go to China, you definitely feel respected, and you feel like an athlete, and you you feel like they they really appreciate you. That's great. That sounds awesome. I'd, I'd love to go there someday, um, whether chess related or otherwise. And did you, I mean, I know that you were just a kid, so you probably didn't get to like expand these trips at all. I'm guessing like it was probably just go to the place and then head back home. Right. I didn't get to do a lot of sightseeing. So there would usually be a free day embedded in these tournaments and we would do a group tour, but I, I wouldn't get to explore as much. And also I was very young, so I couldn't, you know, really go out on my own and, and have a look around. Um, but I definitely like you, I feel like that way, if you do less touristy things and you're interacting more with like the locals and so you're eating more like the the local food, then I feel like that gives you a better sense of the the country or the city that you're in. Right. And, and now you're too big an achiever for the, for the frivolous chess trips. You can't, you know, you, what do you get three weeks of vacation a year or something like that? 
Yeah, we get four weeks of vacation, but that doesn't include weekends, so it only comes out to 20 days. So I, I have to choose wisely. So yeah, what? But I, I, recently I had to travel to Helsinki, Finland to um, for work uh, to assist with depositions for one of my cases. And that, that, that was a great experience, too. And I was grateful that uh, all my experiences in traveling for chess tournaments helped me there because that was a very intense schedule where we would, you know, prep witnesses one day and then defend the depositions the next day. And it was just constant nonstop, like prepping and then going out there and then and then going back. And then in the meantime, you have all these work requests coming in from the New York office who are in a different time zone, seven hours behind. So when you're done with that day, New York is waking up and they want you to do more stuff. Wow. That's intense. Yeah. But I did, I did get to see Helsinki for a bit. And then I, I took like a, a little weekend trip to Prague nice. and Vienna because they're all so close together. So that's been my, my, my recent adventures in traveling. Sounds good to me. I've been to Helsinki and Prague, but not Vienna. Um, you can take a train from Prague to Vienna. It's very easy. Yeah, I I should have done it because <laughs> it's probably not happening soon now. Because, um, but someday I'll I'll, uh, I'll rise again. Um, so, what about like? So, what do you do with your work vacations? Like, so that was a, a business trip that you were able to expand a little bit. Um, do you like? Are you do you go to beaches or do you try to see places or just relax at home or what? Yeah, that's a good question because I was actually just um, thinking about how I'm going to spend my vacations if I'm not playing in the chess tournament because, you know, like to to the firm, I guess it looks like I'm taking a vacation if I'm playing in the tournament. But for me, it's it's even yeah. more intense going through this tournament. So it's not a real vacation. Um, but I, I'm also the type of person where I can't just go and like sit on the beach and relax. I would like freak out because I, I need to do something and I feel like I need to be productive so I wouldn't last longer than like 10 minutes on the beach I would get <laughs> frustrated and, and try to do something so the the types of trips that I like to take are you know going to big cities and like seeing all the sites so when I was in Prague that was for only um two days I think and um fortunately uh, one of my good friends uh Katarina Nemtsova was there who I met from chess as well and she showed me around and I basically like took the whole day and like we saw we saw all the sites and we did everything and then when I was in Vienna I, like did did the same thing it was just constant non-stop like sightseeing 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 so I felt like I was being productive because I was checking things off my bucket list nice that sounds good and um just going to jump around a little bit, but uh, so are you on a, a partner track? Like what for your law firm? What's do you, does that something that's on your radar or that like is inescapable or what's the situation there? Oh, that that's a decision not up to me. That's up to the powers that be at the firm. I, I really don't know okay. how that process works. All right. Alyssa's bosses hook her up. You, you got to do, <laughs> you got to do it. Clearly she's hardworking. So, uh, putting in a good word for you there, but so, um, that I guess will, uh, may impact how much free time you have in the future. Um, I wanted to, um, talk a little bit more about the U S championship. Cause I was curious and, and just, um, eyeballing like your rating and thinking about the field. So, um, are you like, do you, are you still working to try to qualify each year or is that kind of on the back burner right now for you? Um, yeah, it, it's becoming harder and harder to qualify because you see a lot of the, this young talent rise up and they're all doing phenomenally well. So it, it's been harder to keep up with, with it that way. And I feel like I'm an old person or something saying like, oh, like the, these kids these days and how hard it is to keep up with <laughs> them. Don't worry. It's a theme of this podcast. So. So, oh, it is? Yeah, it's unavoidable, at least on my end, maybe less so the guests, but I'm definitely dazzled by like. Uh, how how talented so many young players are, but anyway. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean the landscape of chess has changed so much in terms of how information is received because there's so much chess content out there online right now, and it's accessible to so many people. Like when when I was starting out and playing, like you didn't have these free GM lectures at your fingertips, and you actually had to go and hire a coach and spend a good amount of time with him or her and um, really work on improving your game. And now it's you know it, it's the, the the digital age i guess yeah i always tell my students how lucky they are but 
you know mm-hmm. i mean you'll only go as far as the time you put in no matter no matter how many resources are at your disposal um yeah but so going back to your question you know, it, it's always nice to qualify and, and to compete, but I've played so many years now that I feel, you know, and, and I don't want to play just for the sake of playing and I don't want to play just to finish in like the middle of the pack. But so if I do play, I want to play when I feel like I actually have a chance to make a run at the title. And for that, I'll, I think I would need to maybe take time off specifically for chess and, you know, decide that this is my goal and this is what I want to do. And in saying that, I have to definitely commend my good friend, uh, Sabina Foyser, who won the title after competing so many years. And she competed also in the very first U.S. championships when it was held in St. Louis in 2009. And so she's been there and like constantly improving every year. And things finally came together for her. Yeah. Yeah. She um, she was a great podcast guest as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Alyssa, one other topic that we definitely need to talk about, because you you wrote an article for Chessbase that I, I felt like got an unusual amount of attention um, about, once again, the topic of women's chess. So I think a good amount of listeners will have come across it, but why don't, um, just for anyone who hasn't, you um, express what your thesis was uh, about women's chess. Sure. Yeah. So I guess that we, we started off the podcast talking about, you know, the, the titles and this is a good way to come back to that. So the article I thought was championing a very simple proposition and the proposition was that there is nothing inherent to women's chess such that it would warrant its own label. And usually the way women's chess is used is in more of a disparaging context, you know, and I pointed to some articles where they were saying, oh, well, look at who you found's results. This is great for women's chess because look at how terrible women's chess was, you know, back in the day, or look at how like all these women players are blundering. And so my only, the only point I was making was saying, well, wait a second, like, are you talking about women's chess or are you talking about the chess of, you know, like 2,200 players? Because that tends to be the average rating of um, fields in women's only tournaments. And so it's it's not fair to call women's chess a certain thing if you're sampling only a subset of the chess population in this way. So it, it was more about the semantics of it. Like, let's really consider what we're thinking about when we're talking about women's chess and how we use that in vernacular and whether it services chess or not. And it was actually not supposed to be a commentary at all on the merits of women's titles or the merits of women's only events. So I was very surprised by the reaction that this got because some people may have been thinking that I want to eliminate like women's chess in the sense of like anything that has to do with women only competitions or women only titles. And that was absolutely not at all what the article was getting at. Okay. Do you have, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit. So just for the record, um, are you in favor of, uh, of eliminating women's competitions? I know we've talked about titles, so. Right. Oh, uh, definitely not, not at this stage, not when there are so few women players competing, you know, I would love to see us get to the point where the fields at all tournaments is, you know, like 50, 50, uh, and we don't need the women's only competitions. But I, I think for now, you know, they do serve a good purpose. But I think we have to keep them, you know, instilled with the sense that they they probably will be phased out one day. But it, it's more working towards that end goal. Okay. And Alyssa, I'm a chess teacher. And I know a lot of chess teachers listen to this podcast. Do you have any ideas like what what we can do to uh, promote and keep girls interested in chess. I always like, well, I'll leave the question at that before I go on. Um, do you have any ideas? Uh, I do, and you do notice that a lot of girls tend to drop out of chess around the high school age. And the school, at the scholastic level, it's it's pretty much even. And I talk about this in, in my book, too, that this happens in other fields as well, because in law school women are the slight majority of law school students. But then when you look at um, the partners uh, at law firms, of course, the the percentage trails off. 
And so what what happens there, and not just there, but of course in chess as well. And I think what, when it comes to chess, I think girls are just, they're more practical in terms of, you know, they're thinking about applying to college and they're, they're thinking about these activities and um, can, can chess really help them out there? And so I think if, if we work harder to kind of link success in chess to success and the STEM field to success in business and law and find a way to weave that together, then I think that will dovetail really nicely with uh, empowering women overall. And you'll see more women stay in the game. Okay. And are you in, like, are you in favor of girls tournaments? Um, like, for example, I run some tournaments here in Pittsburgh, and one question I'm trying to answer to myself is whether I should have separate tournaments for girls. Like, do you think that's a benefit or a hindrance to to young girls who have at least some interest in chess at a particular moment in their lives? Um. Yeah, I mean, I I have mixed feelings because if the I think it depends on the numbers because if if the fields are so even where you can have just one scholastic event and the field will be 50% girls, then it's kind of like, well, what's the point of having the, the separate girls event? And you, you can have, I guess, like prizes for top female and other incentives that way. But I think, you know, you it, it is very important for young boys and girls to have this sense of community uh, growing up. And I think, you know, boys at, at, at a very young age can be bullies at times. And so I think it's good to show that there is this community of women chess players who are supportive and that chess tournaments can be a positive atmosphere. So I definitely don't see like the harm in in having them. Okay. Yeah, that's sort of the direction I've been leaning as well. But I wasn't sure. And just uh um, to answer what you were getting at, I think I think the national figure for scholastic girl chess players versus boys is around like I want to say seventeen percent, but say twenty ballpark, and I think Pittsburgh may be moderately higher, but it's definitely not fifty fifty. So I feel like it would serve some purpose here. Yeah, I think as long as you give players the choice, you know, as long as a girl can, she can play in either section, that that's fine. Because I think oh. well, you'll, you'll notice that a theme of my thinking is always just give players the choice. Don't do anything to impose your will on players. So don't okay. don't take away all the women's titles. Give women players the choice and, you know, give, give players the choice of which which uh, event they want to compete in. And eventually, I think things will make their way towards the optimal outcome. Okay. Yeah, I actually wasn't thinking of like within a given tournament because there are so like, I mean, this is a um, little inside baseball, but like Pittsburgh's small enough where it would kind of dilute the overall field to have like a separate women's section at a given tournament. So I was thinking more of like as an annual uh, standalone event sort of thing, like once a year girls tournament like they have with girls nationals but on a local scale um, yeah i think that would definitely uh help draw attention to the event you'd get a lot of participants that way okay um that's good to know because you, you know these things uh greg shahadi our mutual friend has a facebook thread that's raging right now about how like i mean i think a lot of people feel like they're walking on eggshells even just talking about gender in chess so and I don't, I don't know what the way out of that is but uh there we are yeah it's unfortunate that you know we, we can't discuss these issues so freely because of political correctness but i think we have to keep in mind that everyone is going with, with the same overall goal in mind which is to promote chess to all players to young players to girls and i think it, it's as long as we keep that in mind and as long as, you know, people aren't blaming, you know, people who try to host girls only tournaments as, Oh, you're, you're demeaning gender. You're saying that, Oh, girls can't compete as well as boys. Why are you having this tournament? And then people on the other side are saying, well, if we have this tournament, this is good for getting more girls involved in the game and and participation. And, you know, you're, you have some false political correctness and are trying to push your own agenda. And so if, if we have these types of arguments on both sides, we're not really going to get anywhere. So I think we just need to come up with more of a methodology of how to approach this. Okay. 
Well, that's helpful. All right. Well, Alyssa, I've only got one or two more questions for you. Mainly, I just wanted to talk a little bit about like uh, how how life in New York is. Like, so you live where in Manhattan? Do you live? I live in uh, Midtown. Actually, I'd rather not say where I live. Okay, yeah, that's understandable. We we heard the uh, sirens blaring, um, mm-hmm. so we know we know you're right in the hustle and bustle. And what else do you like? What are your other hobbies? If the rare moments when you're not like writing a book or working, what else do you like to do? I still keep up with dance, and that's a big part of my life. And in fact, my favorite part of New York is the availability of dance classes and from the top choreographers. And it's amazing that you can just take the classes and drop in. And so just like I've been working on expanding like my chess knowledge and my chess writing, I've also been working on keeping up with dance and expanding my dance. Because when I was in Philadelphia, I trained exclusively in ballet. But since moving to New York, there are these studios and they do every type of dance. So I dabbled in hip hop. I do more jazz now. And it. I also feel like I'm in the best shape I am in my life thanks to the availability of all of these dance classes. Yeah, New York has to be a, like a special place for that. You like pr- probably the best place in the world in terms of exposure to like different cultures and um, art. Yes. Yeah, yeah. My wife also did ballet, and I know every once in a while she's like, "I should take a ballet class," but then she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, Alyssa, I can't think of any other questions. Um, uh, so if people would like to, to reach out to you, what, how should they do so? Uh, well, they can follow me on Twitter, on um, Facebook. I'm usually active in there. And I, I do have a personal chess website, com. So there's more information there, too. Okay, yeah. And obviously, you can get the book on Amazon. And I will link to it in the show the show description, as well as put it on the uh, ever-growing list of uh, books written by books written by perpetual chess guests and suggested by perpetual chess guests. Um, so, Alyssa, thanks a lot for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. We we hit some interesting topics. So, um, uh, I wish you good luck in the future. Um, oh, one last question. So, do you have like with this book now finished? Do you have like a big project? Like, do you have anything else in mind besides your busy job? Uh, uh, that's because uh, th- this book took a lot out of me. Yeah. So in It's okay this, to say I, no. I feel I think you're doing plenty as it is. Yeah, I think I have to decide now whether do I want another big project or do I want to just kind of take a step back and appreciate what I have, follow, uh, find a routine and follow through with it. And we'll see. Because before this book, I was also working on um, this Master Method chess series. And I, right, I do some yeah. videos for iChess. And that also took a long time to finish. That took almost, um, I don't know, nine months to film that 15-hour DVD. And that, that took a lot out of me. And then the book came up, and that took a lot out of me. So yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to see what comes up because uh, opportunities arise when you least expect them. Nice. Yeah, well, it sounds like you could, you could use a bit of a break as well. You've earned it. All right. Well, thanks again, Alyssa. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.